For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamor of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is The New Atlantis by Ursula K. Le Guin, narrated by Gabrielle DeCure. The story is copyright 1975 by Ursula K. Le Guin and was originally published in The New Atlantis and Other Novellas of Science Fiction, edited by Robert Silverberg. Ursula K. Le Guin is the author of innumerable SF and fantasy classics, including The Left Hand of Darkness, The Lace of Heaven, The Dispossessed, and A Wizard of Earthsea, as well as other works in the Earthsea cycle. She has been named a Grandmaster by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and is the winner of five Hugos, six Nebulas, two World Fantasy Awards, and 20 Locus Awards. Le Guin is also a winner of the Newbery Medal, the National Book Award, the Penn Malamud Award, and was named a living legend by the Library of Congress. And now, buckle up, we're going to light speed. The New Atlantis by Ursula K. Le Guin Coming back from my wilderness week, 
I sat by an odd sort of man in the bus. For a long time we didn't talk. I was mending stockings, and he was reading. Then the bus broke down a few miles outside Gresham. Boiler trouble, the way it generally is when the driver insists on trying to go over 30. It was a supersonic, super-scenic, deluxe, long-distance coal burner with home comfort. That means a toilet. And the seats were pretty comfortable, at least those that hadn't yet worked loose from their bolts, so everybody waited inside the bus. Besides, it was raining. We began talking, the way people do when there's a breakdown and a wait. He held up his pamphlet and tapped it. He was a dry-looking man with a school-teacherish way of using his hands and said, This is interesting. I've been reading that a new continent is rising from the depths of the sea. The blue stockings were hopeless. You have to have something besides holes to darn onto. Which sea? They're not sure. Most specialists think the Atlantic, but there's evidence it may be happening in the Pacific, too. Won't the oceans get a little crowded? I said, not taking it seriously. I was a bit snappish, because of the breakdown and because those blue stockings had been good warm ones. He tapped the pamphlet again and shook his head quite serious. No, he said. The old continents are sinking to make room for the new. You can see that that is happening. You certainly can. Manhattan Island is now under 11 feet of water at low tide, and there are oyster beds in Girardelli Square. I thought that was because the oceans are rising from polar melt. He shook his head again. Well, that is a factor, due to the greenhouse effect of pollution. Indeed, Antarctica may become inhabitable. But climatic factors will not explain the emergence of the new, or possibly very old, continents in the Atlantic and Pacific. He went on explaining about continental drift, but I liked the idea of inhabiting Antarctica, and daydreamed about it for a while. I thought of it as very empty, very quiet, all white and blue, with a faint golden glow northward from the unrising sun behind the long peak of Mount Erebus. There were a few people there. They were very quiet, too, and wore white tie and tails. Some of them carried oboes and violas. Southward, the white land went up in a long silence toward the pole. Just the opposite, in fact, of the Mount Hood wilderness area. It had been a tiresome vacation. The other women in the dormitory were all right, but it was macaroni for breakfast, and there were so many organized sports. I had looked forward to the hike up to the National Forest Preserve, the largest forest left in the United States, but the trees didn't look at all the way they do in the postcards and brochures and Federal Beautification Bureau advertisements. They were spindly, and they all had little signs on saying which union they had been planted by. 
There were actually a lot more green picnic tables and cement men's and women's than there were trees. There was an electrified fence all around the forest to keep out unauthorized persons. The forest ranger talked about mountain jays, bold little robbers, he said, who will come and snatch the sandwich from your very hand. But I didn't see any. Perhaps because that was the weekly watch-those-surplus-calories day for all the women, and so we didn't have any sandwiches. If I'd seen a mountain jay, I might have snatched the sandwich from his very hand. Who knows? Anyhow, it was an exhausting week, and I wished I'd stayed home and practiced, even though I'd have lost a week's pay, because staying home and practicing the viola doesn't count as planned implementation of recreational leisure as defined by the Federal Union of Unions. When I came back from my Antarctican expedition, the man was reading again, and I got a look at his pamphlet. And that was the odd part of it. The pamphlet was called Increasing Efficiency in Public Accountant Training Schools. And I could see from the one paragraph I got a glance at that there was nothing about new continents emerging from the ocean depths in it. Nothing at all. Then we had to get out and walk on into Gresham, because they had decided that the best thing for us all to do was to get onto the Greater Portland Area Rapid Public Transit Lines, since there had been so many breakdowns that the charter bus company didn't have any more buses to send out to pick us up. The walk was wet and rather dull, except when we passed the Cold Mountain Commune. They have a wall around it to keep out unauthorized persons, and a big neon sign out front saying, Cold Mountain Commune. And there were some people in authentic jeans and ponchos by the highway selling macrame belts and sand-cast candles and soybean bread to the tourists. In Gresham, I took the 440 G. Parpartle Superjet Flyer train to Burnside and East 230th, and then walked to 217th and got the bus to the Goldschmidt overpass and transferred to the shuttle bus, but it had boiler trouble, so I didn't reach downtown transfer point until 10 after 8. And the buses go on a once-an-hour schedule at 8, so I got a meatless hamburger at the Longhorn Inch Thick Steakhouse Dinnerette and caught the 9 o'clock bus and got home about 10. When I let myself into the apartment, I flipped the switch to turn on the lights, but there still weren't any. There had been a power outage in West Portland for three weeks. So I went feeling about for the candles in the dark, and it was a minute or so before I noticed that somebody was lying on my bed. I panicked and tried again to turn the lights on. It was a man lying there in a long, thin heap. I thought a burglar had got in somehow while I was away and died. I opened the door so I could get out quick, or at least my yells could be heard, and then I managed not to shake long enough to strike a match and lighted the candle and came a little closer to the bed. The light disturbed him. He made a sort of snorting in his throat and turned his head. 
I saw it was a stranger, but I knew his eyebrows, then the breadth of his closed eyelids. Then I saw my husband. He woke up while I was standing there over him with the candle in my hand. He laughed and said, still half asleep, Ah, Psyche, from the regions which are Holy Land. Neither of us made much fuss. It was unexpected, but it did seem so natural for him to be there, after all. Much more natural than for him not to be there. And he was too tired to be very emotional. We lay there together in the dark, and he explained that they had released him from the rehabilitation camp early because he had injured his back in an accident in the gravel quarry, and they were afraid it might get worse. If he died there, it wouldn't be good publicity abroad, since there have been some nasty rumors about deaths from illness in the rehabilitation camps and the Federal Medical Association hospitals, and there are scientists abroad who have heard of Simon since somebody published his proof of Goldbach's hypothesis in Peking. So they let him out early, with eight dollars in his pocket, which is what he had in his pocket when they arrested him, which made it, of course, fair. He had walked and hitched home from Kerr Delane, Idaho, with a couple of days in jail in Walla Walla for being caught hitchhiking. He almost fell asleep telling me this, and when he had told me, he did fall asleep. He needed a change of clothes and a bath, but I didn't want to wake him. Besides, I was tired, too. We lay side by side, and his head was on my arm. I don't suppose that I have ever been so happy. No. Was it happiness? Something wider and darker, more like knowledge, more like the night. Joy. It was dark for so long, so very long. We were all blind, and there was the cold, a vast, unmoving, heavy cold. We could not move at all. We did not move. We did not speak. Our mouths were closed, pressed shut by the cold and by the weight. Our eyes were pressed shut. Our limbs were held still. Our minds were held still. For how long? There was no length of time. How long is death? And is one dead only after living? or before life as well. Certainly we thought, if we thought anything, that we were dead. But if we had ever been alive, we had forgotten it. There was a change. It must have been the pressure that changed first, although we did not know it. The eyelids are sensitive to touch. They must have been weary of being shut. When the pressure upon them weakened a little, they opened. But there was no way for us to know that. It was too cold for us to feel anything. There was nothing to be seen. There was black. But then, 
then for the event created time, created before and after, near and far, now and then. Then there was the light. One light. One small, strange light that passed slowly, at what distance we could not tell, a small, greenish-white, slightly blurred point of radiance, passing. Our eyes were certainly open, then, for we saw it. We saw the moment. The moment is a point of light. Whether in darkness or in the field of all light, the moment is small and moves, but not quickly. And then it is gone. It did not occur to us that there might be another moment. There was no reason to assume that there might be more than one. One was marvel enough that in all the field of the dark, in the cold, heavy, dense, moveless, timeless, placeless, boundless black, there should have occurred once a small, slightly blurred, moving light. Time need be created only once, we thought. But we were mistaken. The difference between one and more than one is all the difference in the world. Indeed, that difference is the world. The light returned. The same light or another one? There was no telling. But this time we wondered about the light. Was it small and near to us, or large and far away? Again, there was no telling. But there was something about the way it moved, a trace of hesitation, a tentative quality, that did not seem proper to anything large and remote. The stars, for instance. We began to remember the stars. The stars had never hesitated. Perhaps the noble certainty of their gait had been a mere effect of distance. Perhaps, in fact, they had hurtled wildly, enormous furnace fragments of a primal bomb thrown through the cosmic dark. But time and distance soften all agony. If the universe, as seems likely, began with an act of destruction, the stars we had used to see told no tales of it. They had been implacably serene. The planets, however. We began to remember the planets. They had suffered certain changes, both of appearance and of course. At certain times of the year, Mars would reverse its direction and go backward through the stars. Venus had been brighter and less bright as she went through her phases of crescent, full, and wane. Mercury had shuddered like a skidding drop of rain on the sky, flushed with daybreak. The light we now watched had that erratic, trembling quality. We saw it, unmistakably, change direction and go backward. It then grew smaller and fainter, blinked an eclipse, and slowly disappeared. 
slowly, but not slowly enough for a planet. Then, the third then, arrived the indubitable and positive wonder of the world, the magic trick. Watch now, watch. You will not believe your eyes. Mama, Mama, look what I can do. Seven lights in a row, proceeding fairly rapidly, with a darting movement from left to right. Proceeding less rapidly from right to left, two dimmer, greenish lights. Two lights halt, blink, reverse course, proceed hastily, and in a wavering manner from left to right. Seven lights increase speed and catch up. Two lights flash desperately, flicker, and are gone. Seven lights hang still for some while, then merge gradually into one streak, veering away, and little by little vanish into the immensity of the dark. But in the dark now are growing other lights, many of them. Lamps, dots, rows, scintillations some near at hand, some far. Like the stars, yes, but not stars. It is not the great existences we are seeing, but only the little lives. In the morning, Simon told me something about the camp, but not until after he had had me check the apartment for bugs. I thought at first he had been given behavior mod and gone paranoid, we never had been infested, and I'd been living alone for a year and a half. Surely they didn't want to hear me talking to myself. But he said, They may have been expecting me to come here. But they let you go free. He just lay there and laughed at me. So I checked everywhere we could think of. I didn't find any bugs, but it did look as if somebody had gone through the bureau drawers while I was away in the wilderness. Simon's papers were all at Max's, so that didn't matter. I made tea on the Primus and washed and shaved Simon with the extra hot water in the kettle. He had a thick beard and wanted to get rid of it because of the lice he had brought from camp. And while we were doing that, he told me about the camp. In fact, he told me very little, but not much was necessary. He had lost about 20 pounds, as he only weighed 140 to start with, this left little to go on with. His knees and wrist bones stuck out like rocks under the skin. His feet were all swollen and chewed-looking from the camp boots. He hadn't dared take the boots off the last three days of walking because he was afraid he wouldn't be able to get them back on. When he had to move or sit up so I could wash him, he shut his eyes. Am I really here? he asked. Am I here? Yes, I said, you are here. What I don't understand is how you got here. Oh, it wasn't bad so long as I kept moving. All you need is to know where you're going, to have some place to go. You know, some of the people in camp, if they'd let them go, they wouldn't have had that. They couldn't have gone anywhere. Keeping moving was the main thing.
See, my back's all ceased up now. When he had to get up to go to the bathroom, he moved like a 90-year-old. He couldn't stand straight, but was all bent out of shape and shuffled. I helped him put on clean clothes. When he lay down on the bed again, a sound of pain came out of him, like tearing thick paper. I went around the room putting things away. He asked me to come sit by him and said I was going to drown him if I went on crying. You'll submerge the entire North American continent, he said. I can't remember what he said, but he made me laugh, finally. It is hard to remember things, Simon says, and hard not to laugh when he says them. This is not merely the partiality of affection. He makes everybody laugh. I doubt that he intends to. It is just that a mathematician's mind works differently from other people's. Then, when they laugh, that pleases him. It was strange, and it is strange, to be thinking about him, the man I have known for ten years, the same man, while he lay there changed out of recognition, a different man. It is enough to make you understand why most languages have a word like soul. There are various degrees of death, and time spares us none of them. Yet something endures, for which a word is needed. I said what I had not been able to say for a year and a half. I was afraid they'd brainwash you. He said, Oh, behavior mod is expensive, even just the drugs. They save it mostly for the VIPs. But I'm afraid they got a notion I might be important after all. I got questioned a lot the last couple of months about my foreign contacts. He snorted. The stuff that got published abroad, I suppose. So I want to be careful and make sure it's just a camp again next time and not a federal hospital. Simon, were they... Are they cruel or just righteous? He did not answer for a while. He did not want to answer. He knew what I was asking. He knew by what thread hangs hope, the sword above our heads. Some of them, he said at last, mumbling. Some of them had been cruel. Some of them had enjoyed their work. You cannot blame everything on society. Prisoners as well as guards, he said. You cannot blame everything on the enemy. Some of them, Bell, he said with energy, touching my hand. Some of them, there were men like gold there. The thread is tough. You cannot cut it with one stroke. What have you been playing? he asked. Forrest, Schubert. With the quartet? Oh, trio now. Janet went to Oakland with a new lover. 
Ah, oh, poor Max. It's just as well, really. She isn't a good pianist. I make Simon laugh, too, though I don't intend to. We talked until it was past time for me to go to work. My shift since the Full Employment Act last year is ten to two. I am an inspector in a recycled paper bag factory. I have never rejected a bag yet. The electronic inspector catches all the defective ones first. It is a rather depressing job. But it's only four hours a day, and it takes more time than that to go through all the lines and physical and mental examinations, and fill out all the forms, and talk to all the welfare counselors and inspectors every week in order to qualify as unemployed, and then line up every day for the ration stamps and the dole. Simon thought I ought to go to work as usual. I tried to, but I couldn't. He had felt very hot to the touch when I kissed him goodbye. I went instead and got a black market doctor. A girl at the factory had recommended her for an abortion, if I ever wanted one, without going through the regulation two years of sex-depressant drugs the Fed meds make you take when they give you an abortion. She was a jeweler's assistant in a shop on Alder Street, and the girl said she was convenient because if you didn't have enough cash, you could leave something in pawn at the jeweler's as payment. Nobody ever does have enough cash. And, of course, credit cards aren't worth much on the black market. The doctor was willing to come at once, so we rode home on the bus together. She gathered very soon that Simon and I were married, and it was funny to see her look at us and smile like a cat. Some people love illegality for its own sake. Men, more often than women. It's men who make laws and enforce them and break them and think the whole performance is wonderful. Most women would rather just ignore them. You could see that this woman, like a man, actually enjoyed breaking them. That may have been what put her into an illegal business in the first place, a preference for the shady side but there was more to it than that. No doubt she'd wanted to be a doctor, too, and the Federal Medical Association doesn't admit women into the medical schools. She probably got her training as some other doctor's private pupil under the counter. Very much as Simon learned mathematics, since the universities don't teach much but business administration and advertising and media skills anymore, However she learned it, she seemed to know her stuff. She fixed up a kind of homemade traction device for Simon very handily and informed him that if he did much more walking for two months, he'd be crippled the rest of his life. But if he behaved himself, he'd just be more or less lame. It isn't the kind of thing you'd expect to be grateful for being told, but we both were. Leaving... She gave me a bottle of about 200 plain white pills, unlabeled. Aspirin, she said. You'll be in a good deal of pain off and on for weeks. I looked at the bottle. I had never seen aspirin before. Only the super-buffered Pain Gone and the triple-power NLG Zik and the extra-strength Apansprin 
with the miracle ingredient most doctors recommend, which the Fed Meds always give you prescriptions for, to be filled at your FMA-approved private enterprise-friendly drugstore at the low, low prices established by the Pure Food and Drug Administration in order to inspire competitive research. Aspirin, the doctor repeated. The miracle ingredient more doctors recommend. She cat-grinned again. I think she liked us because we were living in sin. That bottle of black market aspirin was probably worth more than the old Navajo bracelet I pawned for her fee. I went out again to register Simon as temporarily domiciled at my address and to apply for temporary unemployment compensation ration stamps for him. They only give them to you for two weeks, and you have to come every day, but to register him as temporarily disabled meant getting the signatures of two fed meds, and I thought I'd rather put that off for a while. It took three hours to go through the lines and get the forms he would have to fill out and to answer the Kratz questions about why he wasn't there in person. They smelled something fishy. Of course, it's hard for them to prove that two people are married and aren't just adultering if you move now and then, and your friends help out by sometimes registering one of you as living at their address. But they had all the back files on both of us, and it was obvious that we had been around each other for a suspiciously long time. The state really does make things awfully hard for itself. It must have been simpler to enforce the laws back when marriage was legal and adultery was what got you into trouble. They only had to catch you once. But I'll bet people broke the law just as often then as they do now. The lantern creatures came close enough at last that we could see not only their light, but their bodies in the illumination of their light. They were not pretty. They were dark-colored, most often a dark red, and they were all mouth. They ate one another whole. Light swallowed light, all swallowed together in the vaster mouth of the darkness. They moved slowly, for nothing, however small and hungry, could move fast under that weight, in that cold. Their eyes, round with fear, were never closed. Their bodies were tiny and bony behind the gaping jaws. They wore queer, ugly decorations on their lips and skulls, fringes, serrated wattles, feather-like fronds, gauds, bangles, lures. Poor little sheep of the deep pastures. Poor ragged, hunched-jawed dwarfs, squeezed to the bone by the weight of the darkness, chilled to the bone by the cold of the darkness, tiny monsters burning with bright hunger who brought us back to life. Occasionally, in the wan, sparse illumination of one of the lantern creatures, we caught a momentary glimpse of other large, unmoving shapes, the barest suggestion, off in the distance, not of a wall, nothing so solid and certain as a wall, but of a surface, an angle. Was it there? Or something would glitter, 
faint, far off, far down. There was no use trying to make out what it might be. Probably it was only a fleck of sediment, mud, or mica, disturbed by a struggle between the lantern creatures, flickering like a bit of diamond dust as it rose and settled slowly. In any case, we could not move to go see what it was. We had not even the cold, narrow freedom of the lantern creatures. We were immobilized, borne down, still shadows among the half-guessed shadow walls. Were we there? The lantern creatures showed no awareness of us. They passed before us, among us, perhaps even through us. It was impossible to be sure. They were not afraid or curious. Once, something a little larger than a hand came crawling near, and for a moment we saw quite distinctly the clean angle where the foot of a wall rose from the pavement in the glow cast by the crawling creature, which was covered with a foliage of plumes, each plume dotted with many tiny bluish points of light. We saw the pavement beneath the creature and the wall beside it, heartbreaking in its exact clear linearity, its opposition to all that was fluid, random, vast, and void. We saw the creature's claws, slowly reaching out and retracting like small stiff fingers, touch the wall, its plumage of light quivering. It dragged itself along and vanished behind the corner of the wall. So we knew that the wall was there, and that it was an outer wall, a house front, perhaps, or the side of one of the towers of the city. We remembered the towers. We remembered the city. We had forgotten it. We had forgotten who we were. But we remembered the city now. When I got home, the FBI had already been there. The computer at the police precinct where I registered Simon's address must have flashed it right over to the computer at the FBI building. They had questioned Simon for about an hour, mostly about what he had been doing during the 12 days it took him to get from the camp to Portland. I suppose they thought he had flown to Peking or something. Having a police record in Walla Walla for hitchhiking helped him establish his story. He told me that one of them had gone to the bathroom. Sure enough, I found a bug stuck on the top of the bathroom door frame. I left it, as we figured it's really better to leave it when you know you have one than to take it off and then never be sure they haven't planted another one you don't know about. As Simon said... If we felt we had to say something unpatriotic, we could always flush the toilet at the same time. I have a battery radio. There are so many work stoppages because of power failures, and days the water has to be boiled and so on, that you really have to have a radio to save wasting time and dying of typhoid. And he turned it on while I was making supper on the Primus. The six o'clock All-American Broadcasting Company news announcer announced that peace was at hand in Uruguay, 
the president's confidential aide, having been seen to smile at the passing blonde as he left the 613th day of the secret negotiations in a villa outside Kathmandu. The war in Liberia was going well. The enemy said they had shot down 17 American planes, but the Pentagon said we had shot down 22 enemy planes, and the capital city... I forget its name, but it hasn't been inhabitable for seven years anyway, was on the verge of being recaptured by the forces of freedom. The police action in Arizona was also successful. The neo-Birch insurgents in Phoenix could not hold out much longer against the massed might of the American Army and Air Force, since their underground supply of small tactical nukes from the weathermen in Los Angeles had been cut off. Then there was an advertisement for FedCred cards and a commercial for the Supreme Court. Take your legal troubles to the nine wise men. Then there was something about why tariffs had gone up and a report from the stock market, which had just closed at over 2,000, and a commercial for U.S. government canned water with a catchy little tune, Don't be sorry when you drink, it's not as healthy as you think. Don't you think you really oughta drink cool, pure USG water? With three sopranos in close harmony on the last line. Then, just as the battery began to give out, and his voice was dying away into a faraway tiny whisper, the announcer seemed to be saying something about a new continent emerging. What was that? I didn't hear, Simon said lying with his eyes shut and his face pale and sweaty. I gave him two aspirins before we ate. He ate little and fell asleep while I was washing the dishes in the bathroom. I had been going to practice, but a viola is fairly wakeful in a one-room apartment. I read for a while instead. It was the bestseller Janet had given me when she left. She thought it was very good, but... Then she likes Franz Liszt, too. I don't read much since the libraries were closed down. It's too hard to get books. All you can buy is bestsellers. I don't remember the title of this one. The cover just said, 90 million copies in print. It was about small-town sex life in the last century. The dear old 1970s, when there weren't any problems and life was so simple and nostalgic. The author squeezed all the naughty thrills he could out of the fact that all the main characters were married. I looked at the end and saw that all the married couples shot each other after all their children became schizophrenic hookers, except for one brave pair that divorced and then leapt into bed together with a clear-eyed pair of government-employed lovers for eight pages of healthy group sex as a brighter future dawned. I went to bed then, too. Simon was hot, but sleeping quietly. His breathing was like the sound of soft waves far away, and I went out to the dark sea on the sound of them. I used to go out to the dark sea often as a child, falling asleep. I had almost forgotten it with my waking mind. As a child, all I had to do was stretch out and think, the dark sea, the dark sea. And soon enough I'd be there, in the great depths, rocking 
but after I grew up, it only happened rarely, as a great gift. To know the abyss of the darkness and not to fear it. To entrust oneself to it and whatever may arise from it. What greater gift? We watch the tiny lights come and go around us, and doing so, we gained a sense of space and of direction, near and far, at least, and higher and lower. It was that sense of space that allowed us to become aware of the currents. Space was no longer entirely still around us, suppressed by the enormous pressure of its own weight. Very dimly, we were aware that the cold darkness moved, slowly, softly, pressing against us a little for a long time, then ceasing in a vast oscillation. The empty darkness flowed slowly along our unmoving, unseen bodies, along them, past them, perhaps through them. We could not tell. Where did they come from, those dim, slow, vast tides? What pressure or attraction stirred the deeps to these slow-drifting movements. We could not understand that. We could only feel their touch against us. But in straining our sense to guess their origin or end, we became aware of something else. Something out there in the darkness of the great currents. Sounds. We listened. We heard. So our sense of space sharpened and localized to a sense of place. For sound is local, as sight is not. Sound is delimited by silence, and it does not rise out of the silence unless it is fairly close, both in space and in time. Though we stand where once the singer stood, we cannot hear the voice singing. The years have carried it off on their tides, submerged it. Sound is a fragile thing, a tremor, as delicate as life itself. We may see the stars, but we cannot hear them. Even were the hollowness of outer space an atmosphere, an ether that transmitted the waves of sound, we could not hear the stars. They are too far away. At most, if we listened, we might hear our own sun, all the mighty, roiling, exploding storm of its burning, as a whisper at the edge of hearing. A sea wave laps one's feet. It is the shock wave of a volcanic eruption on the far side of the world, but one hears nothing. A red light flickers on the horizon. It is the reflection in smoke of a city on the distant mainland burning. But one hears nothing. Only on the slopes of the volcano, in the suburbs of the city, does one begin to hear the deep thunder and the high voices crying. Thus, when we became aware that we were hearing, we were sure that the sounds we heard were fairly close to us, 
and yet we may have been quite wrong, for we were in a strange place, a deep place. The sound travels fast and far in the deep places, and the silence there is perfect, letting the least noise be heard for hundreds of miles. And these were not small noises. The lights were tiny, but the sounds were vast, not loud, but very large. Often they were below the range of hearing, long, slow vibrations rather than sounds. The first we heard seemed to us to rise up through the currents from beneath us. Immense groans, sighs felt along the bone, a rumbling, a deep, uneasy whispering. Later, certain sounds came down to us from above, or borne along the endless levels of the darkness, and these were stranger yet, for they were music. A huge, calling, yearning music from far away in the darkness, calling not to us. Where are you? I am here. Not to us. They were the voices of the great souls, the great lives, the lonely ones, the voyagers, calling, not often answered, where are you, where have you gone? But the bones, the keels and girders of white bones on icy isles of the south, the shores of bones did not reply, nor could we reply. But we listened, and the tears rose in our eyes, salt, not so salt as the oceans, the world-girdling deep bereaved currents, the abandoned roadways of the great lives, not so salt, but warmer. I am here. Where have you gone? No answer. Only the whispering thunder from below. But we knew now, though we could not answer. We knew because we heard, because we felt, because we wept. We knew that we were. And we remembered other voices. Max came the next night. I sat on the toilet lid to practice with the bathroom door shut. The FBI men on the other end of the bug got a solid half hour of scales and double stops, and then quite a good performance of the Hindemith unaccompanied viola sonata. The bathroom being very small and all hard surfaces, the noise I made was really tremendous. Well, not a good sound, far too much echo, but the sheer volume was contagious, and I played louder as I went on. The man up above knocked on his floor once, but if I have to listen to the weekly All-American Olympic Games at full blast every Sunday morning from his TV set, then he has to accept Paul Hindemith coming up out of his toilet now and then. When I got tired, I put a wad of cotton over the bug and came out of the bathroom half-deaf, 
Simon and Max were on fire, burning, unconsumed. Simon was scribbling formulae in traction, and Max was pumping his elbows up and down the way he does like a boxer, and saying, the electron emission, through his nose, with his eyes narrowed, and his mind evidently going light years per second faster than his tongue, because he kept beginning over and saying, the electron emission, and pumping his elbows. Intellectuals at work are very strange to look at, as strange as artists. I never could understand how an audience can sit there and look at a fiddler rolling his eyes and biting his tongue, or a horn player collecting spit, or a pianist like a black cat strapped to an electrified bench, as if what they saw had anything to do with the music. I damped the fires with a quart of black market beer. The legal kind is better but I never have enough ration stamps for beer. I'm not thirsty enough to go without eating. And gradually, Max and Simon cooled down. Max would have stayed talking all night, but I drove him out because Simon was looking tired. I put a new battery in the radio and left it playing in the bathroom and blew out the candle and lay and talked with Simon. He was too excited to sleep. He said that Max had solved the problems that were bothering them before Simon was sent to camp, and had had fitted Simon's equations to, as Simon put it, the bare facts, which means they have achieved direct energy conversion. Ten or twelve people have worked on it at different times since Simon published the theoretical part of it when he was twenty-two. The physicist Anne Jones had pointed out right away that the simplest practical application of the theory would be to build a sun trap, a device for collecting and storing solar energy, only much cheaper and better than the USG solahitas that some rich people have on their houses. And it would have been simple, only they kept hitting the same snag. Now Max had got around the snag. I said that Simon published the theory, but that is inaccurate. Of course, he's never been able to publish any of his papers in print. He's not a federal employee and doesn't have a government clearance. But it did get circulated in what the scientists and poets call Sammy's Dot. That is, just handwritten or hectographed. It's an old joke that the FBI arrests everybody with purple fingers because they have either been hectographing Sammy's dots, or they have impetigo. Anyhow, Simon was on top of the mountain that night. His true joy is in the pure math, but he had been working with Clara and Max and the others in this effort to materialize the theory for ten years, and a taste of material victory is a good thing, once in a lifetime. I asked him to explain what the sun tap would mean to the masses, with me as a representative mass. He explained that it means we can tap solar energy for power, using a device that's easier to build than a jar battery. The efficiency and storage capacity are such that about ten minutes of sunlight will power an apartment complex like ours. Heat and lights and elevators and all for 24 hours, and no pollution, particulate, thermal, or radioactive. 
There isn't any danger of using up the sun? I asked. He took it soberly. It was a stupid question. But after all, not so long ago, people thought there wasn't any danger of using up the earth and said no, because we wouldn't be pulling out energy as we did when we mined or lumbered or split atoms, but just using the energy that comes to us anyhow, as the plants, the trees and grass and rose bushes always have done. You could call it flower power, he said. He was high high up on the mountain, ski-jumping in the sunlight. The state owns us, he said, because the corporative state has a monopoly on power sources, and there's not enough power to go around. But now anybody could build a generator on their roof that would furnish enough power to light a city. I looked out the window at the dark city. We would completely decentralize industry and agriculture. Technology could serve life instead of serving capital. We could each run our own life. Power is power. The state is a machine. We could unplug the machine now. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that's only true when there's a price on power. When groups can keep the power to themselves... When they can use physical power, too, in order to exert spiritual power over, when might makes right. But if power is free, if everybody is equally mighty, well, then everybody's got to find a better way of showing that he's right. Now, that's what Mr. Nobel thought when he invented dynamite, I said. Peace on Earth. He slid down the sunlit slope a couple of thousand feet and stopped beside me in a spray of snow, smiling. Skull at the banquet, he said. Finger riding on the wall. Be still. Look, don't you see the sun shining on the Pentagon? All the roofs are off. The sun shines at last into the corridors of power. And they shrivel up. They wither away. The green grass grows through the carpets of the Oval Room. The hotline is disconnected for non-payment of the bill. The first thing we'll do is build an electrified fence outside the electrified fence around the White House. The inner one prevents unauthorized persons from getting in. The outer one will prevent authorized persons from getting out. Of course, he was bitter. Not many people come out of prison sweet. But it was cruel to be shown this great hope and to know that there was no hope for it. He did know that. He knew it right along. He knew that there was no mountain, that he was skiing on the wind. The tiny lights of the lantern creatures died out one by one, sank away. The distant, lonely voices were silent. The cold, slow currents flowed, vacant, only shaken from time to time by a shifting in the abyss. It was dark again, and no voice spoke. All dark, dumb, cold. Then the sun rose. It was not like the dawns we had begun to remember, 
the change manifold and subtled in the smell and touch of the air, the hush that, instead of sleeping, wakes, holds still and waits. The appearance of objects, looking gray, vague, and new, as if just created. Distant mountains against the eastern sky, one's own hands, the hoary grass full of dew and shadow, the fold in the edge of a curtain hanging by the window. And then, before one is quite sure that one is indeed seeing again, that the light has returned, that day is breaking, the first abrupt sweet stammer of a waking bird. And after that, the chorus, voice by voice, "'This is my nest, this is my tree,' This is my egg, this is my day, this is my life, here I am, here I am, hooray for me, I'm here. No, it wasn't like that at all, this dawn. It was completely silent, and it was blue. In the dawns that we had begun to remember, one did not become aware of the light itself, but of the separate objects touched by the light the things, the world. They were there, visible again, as if visibility were their own property, not a gift from the rising sun. In this dawn, there was nothing but the light itself. Indeed, there was not even light, we would have said, but only color, blue. There was no compass bearing to it. It was not brighter in the east. There was no east or west. There was only up and down, below and above. Below was dark. The blue light came from above. Brightness fell. Beneath, where the shaking thunder had stilled, the brightness died away through violet into blindness. We arising, watched the light fall. In a way, it was more like an ethereal snowfall than like a sunrise. The light seemed to be in discrete particles, infinitesimal flecks, slowly descending, faint, fainter than flecks of fine snow on a dark night, and tinier, but blue, a soft, penetrating blue tending to the violet, the color of the shadows in an iceberg, the color of a streak of sky between gray clouds on a winter afternoon before snow, faint in intensity but vivid in hue, the color of the remote, the color of the cold, the color farthest from the sun. On Saturday night, they held a scientific congress in our room. Clara and Max came, of course, and the engineer Phil Drum and three others who had worked on the sun tap. Phil Drum was very pleased with himself because he had actually built one of the things, a solar cell, and brought it along. I don't think it had occurred to either Max or Simon to build one. Once they knew it could be done, they were satisfied and wanted to get on with something else. But Phil unwrapped his baby with a lot of flourish 
and people made remarks like, Mr. Watson, will you come in here a minute? And, hey, Wilbur, you're off the ground. And, I say, nasty mold you've got there, Alec, why don't you throw it out? And, ugh, ugh, burns, burns, wow, oh, the latter from Max, who does look a little pre-Mousterian. Phil explained that he had exposed the cell for one minute at four in the afternoon up in Washington Park during a light rain. The lights were back on on the west side since Thursday, so we could test it without being conspicuous. We turned off the lights after Phil had wired the table lamp cord to the cell. He turned on the lamp switch. The bulb came on, about twice as bright as before, at its full 40 watts. City power, of course, was never full strength. We all looked at it. It was a dime store table lamp with a metalized gold base and a white plastic cloth shade. Brighter than a thousand suns, Simon murmured from the bed. Could it be, said Clara Edmonds, that we physicists have known sin and have come out the other side? It really wouldn't be any good at all for making bombs with, Max said dreamily. Bombs, Phil Drum said with scorn. Bombs are obsolete. Don't you realize that we could move a mountain with this kind of power? I mean, pick up Mount Hood, move it, and set it down. We could thaw Antarctica. We could freeze the Congo. We could sink a continent. Give me a fulcrum, and I'll move the world. Well, Archimedes, you've got your fulcrum. The sun. Christ, Simon said. The radio bell? The bathroom door was shut, and I had put cotton over the bug. But he was right. If they were going to go ahead at this rate, there had better be some added static. And though I liked watching their faces in the clear light of the lamp, they all had good, interesting faces, well-worn, like the handles of wooden tools or the rocks in a running stream, I did not much want to listen to them talk tonight. Not because I wasn't a scientist, that made no difference. And not because I disagreed or disapproved or disbelieved anything they said. Only because it grieved me terribly, their talking. Because they couldn't rejoice aloud over a job done and a discovery made, but had to hide there and whisper about it because they couldn't go out into the sun. I went into the bathroom with my viola and sat on the toilet and did a long set of sautee exercises. Then I tried to work at the forest trio, but it was too assertive. I played the solo part from Harold in Italy, which is beautiful, but it wasn't quite the right mood either. They were still going strong in the other room. I began to improvise. After a few minutes in E minor, the light over the shaving mirror began to flicker and dim. Then it died. Another outage. The table lamp in the other room did not go out, being connected with the sun, not with the 23 atomic fission plants that powered the greater Portland area. 
Within two seconds, somebody had switched it off, too, so that we shouldn't be the only window in the West Hills left alight. And I could hear them rooting for candles and rattling matches. I went on improvising in the dark. Without light, when you couldn't see all the hard, shiny surfaces of things, the sound seemed softer and less muddled. I went on, and it began to shape up. All the laws of harmonics sang together when the bow came down. The strings of the viola were the chords of my own voice, tightened by sorrow, tuned to the pitch of joy. The melody created itself out of air and energy. It raised up in the valleys, and the mountains and hills were made low, and the crooked straight, and the rough places plain. And the music went out to the dark sea, and sang in the darkness over the abyss. When I came out, they were all sitting there, and none of them was talking. Max had been crying. I could see little candle flames in the tears around his eyes. Simon lay flat on the bed in the shadows, his eyes closed. Phil Drum sat hunched over, holding the solar cell in his hands. I loosened the pegs, put the bow and the viola in the case, and cleared my throat. It was embarrassing. I finally said, I'm sorry. One of the women spoke. Rose Abramsky, a private student of Simon's, a big shy woman who could hardly speak at all unless it was in mathematical symbols. I saw it, she said. I saw it. I saw the white towers and the water streaming down their sides and running back down to the sea, and the sunlight shining in the streets after 10,000 years of darkness. I heard them, Simon said, very low from the shadow. I heard their voices. Oh, Christ, stop it, Max cried out and got up and went blundering out into the unlit hall without his coat. We hear him running down the stairs. Phil, said Simon, lying there. Could we raise up the White Towers with our lever and our fulcrum? After a long silence, Phil Drum answered, We have the power to do it. What else do we need? Simon said. What else do we need besides power? Nobody answered him. The blue changed. It became brighter, lighter, and at the same time thicker, impure. The ethereal luminosity of blue-violet turned to turquoise, intense and opaque. Still, we could not have said that everything was now turquoise-colored, for there were still no things. 
There was nothing except the color of turquoise. The change continued. The opacity became veined and thinned. The dense, solid color began to appear translucent, transparent. Then it seemed as if we were in the heart of a sacred jade, or the brilliant crystal of a sapphire or an emerald. As at the inner structure of a crystal, there was no motion. But there was something else now to see. It was as if we saw the motionless, elegant, inward structure of the molecules of a precious stone. Planes and angles appeared about us, shadowless and clear, in that even, glowing, blue-green light. These were the walls and towers of the city, the streets, the windows, the gates. We knew them, but we did not recognize them. We did not dare to recognize them. It had been so long, and it was so strange. We had used to dream when we lived in this city. We had lain down nights in rooms behind the windows and slept and dreamed. We had all dreamed of the ocean, of the deep sea. Were we not dreaming now? Sometimes the thunder and tremor deep below us rolled again, but it was faint now, far away. As far away as our memory of the thunder and the tremor and the fire and the towers falling long ago. Neither the sound nor the memory frightened us. We knew them. The sapphire light brightened overhead to green, almost green gold. We looked up. The tops of the highest towers were hard to see, glowing in the radiance of light. The streets and doorways were darker, more clearly defined. In one of those long, jewel-dark streets, something was moving, something not composed of planes and angles, but of curves and arcs. We all turned to look at it, slowly, wondering as we did so at the slow ease of our own motion, our freedom. Sinuous, with a beautiful flowing, gathering, rolling movement, now rapid and now tentative, the thing drifted across the street from a blank garden wall to the recess of a door. There, in the dark blue shadow, it was hard to see for a while. We watched. A pale blue curve appeared at the top of the doorway, a second followed, and a third. The moving thing clung, or hovered there, above the door, like a swaying knot of silvery cords, or a boneless hand, one arched finger pointing carelessly to something above the lintel of the door, something like itself, but motionless. A carving. A carving in jade light. A carving in stone. Delicately and easily, 
The long curving tentacle followed the curves of the carved figure, the eight-petal limbs, the round eyes. Did it recognize its image? The living one swung suddenly, gathered its curves in a loose knot, and darted away down the street, swift and sinuous. Behind it, a faint cloud of darker blue hung for a minute and dispersed, revealing again the carved figure above the door. The sea flower, the cuttlefish, quick, great-eyed, graceful, evasive, the cherished sign carved on a thousand walls, worked into the design of cornices, pavements, handles, lids of jewel boxes, canopies, tapestries, tabletops, gateways. Down another street, about the level of the first-floor windows, came a flickering drift of hundreds of motes of silver. With a single motion, all turned toward the cross street, and glittered off into the dark blue shadows. There were shadows now. We looked up, up from the flight of silverfish, up from the streets where the jade-green currents flowed and the blue shadows fell. We moved and looked up, yearning to the high towers of our city. They stood the fallen towers. They glowed in ever-brightening radiance, not blue or blue-green up there, but gold. Far above them lay a vast, circular, trembling brightness, the sun's light on the surface of the sea. We are here. When we break through the bright circle into life, the water will break and stream white down the white sides of the towers and run down the steep streets back into the sea. The water will glitter in dark hair, on the eyelids of dark eyes, and dry to a thin white film of salt. We are here. Whose voice? Who called to us? He was with me for 12 days. On January 28th, the Kratz came from the Bureau of Health, Education, and Welfare and said that since he was receiving unemployment compensation while suffering from an untreated illness, the government must look after him and restore him to health because health is the inalienable right of the citizens of a democracy. He refused to sign the consent forms, so the chief health officer signed them. He refused to get up, so two of the policemen pulled him up off the bed. He started to try to fight them. The chief health officer pulled his gun and said that if he continued to struggle, he would shoot him for resisting welfare and arrest me for conspiracy to defraud the government. The man who was holding my arms behind my back said they could always arrest me for unreported pregnancy with intent to form a nuclear family. At that, Simon stopped trying to get free. It was really all he was trying to do. Not to fight them, just to get his arms free. He looked at me, and they took him out. <laughs> 
He is in the Federal Hospital in Salem. I have not been able to find out whether he is in the regular hospital or the mental wards. It was on the radio again yesterday, about the rising land masses in the South Atlantic and the Western Pacific. At Max's the other night, I saw a TV special explaining about geophysical stresses and subsidence and faults. The U.S. Geodetic Service is doing a lot of advertising around town. The most common one is a big billboard that says, It's not our fault, with a picture of a beaver pointing to a schematic map that shows how even if Oregon has a major earthquake and subsidence, as California did last month, it will not affect Portland, or only the western suburbs, perhaps. The news also said that they plan to halt the tidal waves in Florida by dropping nuclear bombs where Miami was. Then they will reattach Florida to the mainland with landfill. They are already advertising real estate for housing developments on the landfill. The president is staying at the Mile High White House in Aspen, Colorado. I don't think it will do him much good. Houseboats down on the Willamette are selling for $500,000. There are no trains or buses running south from Portland because all the highways were badly damaged by the tremors and landslides last week, so I will have to see if I can get to Salem on foot. I still have the rucksack I bought for the Mount Hood Wilderness Week. I got some dry lima beans and raisins with my Federal Fair Share Super Value Green Stamp Minimal Ration Book for February. It took the whole book. And Phil Drum made me a tiny camp stove powered with the solar cell. I didn't want to take the Primus. It's too bulky and I did want to be able to carry the viola. Max gave me a half pint of brandy. When the brandy is gone, I expect I will stuff this notebook into the bottle and put the cap on tight and leave it on a hillside somewhere between here and Salem. I like to think of it being lifted up little by little by the water and rocking and going out to the dark sea. Where are you? We are here. Where have you gone? Welcome back. You have been listening to Gabrielle DeCure reading The New Atlantis by Ursula K. Le Guin. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Skyboat Media the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audio and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rutnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. 
Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. Our audiobook, Lightspeed Year One, contains all of the podcasts from our first year and is available at downpour.com and audible.com. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.